So would you open this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to just one verse in chapter 7, verse 53, and then we're going to read all the way to chapter 8, verse 30. So grateful for Hugh and his preaching last week, um, declaring that for whoever believes in the Lord Jesus as uh, their Savior and their Lord, that they would experience the joy of having living waters flowing out from their heart. A new life that not only empowers the believer, but then gives life and offers life to other people. So grateful for the message that he brought. And I just want you to, you know, you know, we, we're, we're trying to stay, keep up, up some sort of tempo as we go through the book of John because we don't want to get so focused in just the small details that we're missing the big picture of it. And here's a big picture for you to just be considering. Moses had prophesied that there would be a better deliverer than him that would come to save God's people from his sin. And you really see that unfolding in Jesus's life and ministry. First, you see that Jesus is the true bread from heaven, isn't he? Way better than the manna in the wilderness. Again, why? Because he's the better deliverer that Moses was talking about. And then you see, just last week, he was talking about the living water. Jesus is the rock that was pierced so that rivers of living water could flow out from him into our hearts to bring us salvation and strength and, and, um, and courage and compassion to follow him all the days of our lives. And then this morning, we're going to hear Jesus say, I'm the light of the world. And it's a far better light than the pillar of fire that God used to save and guide and protect the people of Israel. Do you see, do you see this? Just the storyline of God's word carries from Genesis to Revelation, doesn't it? And it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Oh, so excited about that. And I hope that blesses your hearts this morning too. So before we dig into the passage this morning, there's, there's a some comments that, that we felt as elders that we needed to make about the first portion of the scripture that we're going to read this morning. Um, if you look closely in uh, the section of chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, you should probably see in your Bibles either a footnote or like brackets in the ESV. It's double bracketed. And, and those things should make you stop and say, okay, what is this talking about? And what, they, what it's talking about is it says that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. So just a couple of comments there. As many of you know, we, we do not possess any of the original manuscripts of the New Testament books. Our, our New Testament is based upon the translation of some 5,800 ancient Greek copies that were made from the original manuscripts. 5,800 is an amazing number and far exceeds the, the historical documents, the copies of original documents that are just generally accepted as historical fact in other realms of, uh, of study in our world. And if you include translations like those in Latin, the number of ancient manuscripts soars into the realm of 25,000 that are, for the most part, amazingly close, remarkably close in their readings, consistent, consistent, consistent in their readings. I just don't have time to go deeper into this, and you can certainly talk to us more later if you want or, or study it yourself. But you should be encouraged that our entire Bible is the best attested book, historically, theologically, archaeologically, and as such should be the most trusted book, written because it's been given to us by God and not from man. Um, so we're delving here into a science called textual criticism, and that's where scholars evaluate historical manuscript evidence to try to determine which reading of the manuscripts is most likely closest to the original. 
That's important, isn't it? Don't we want? Because the original is, we, we say it all the time, it's divinely inspired, it's inerrant, it's sufficient, and it's authoritative in its divine inspiration. So given so much evidence, it really stands out when something was not in the earliest manuscripts. So given all of those manuscripts, it just stands out if something is not in the earliest ones and starts coming later. In fact, it was not seen in copies of the Greek manuscripts until the fifth century. Not only that, it was not referenced by the early church fathers in their commentaries about the Gospel of John. No Eastern church father uh, references the section of John, this section of John until the 10th century. And if you studied the Greek terminology that was used in this section, and then Alan could talk to you about this, or Christian Cotton, Christian got his Master of Divinity in Biblical Languages. So our two brothers could talk to you about this in a pretty authoritative way. This section of John uses Greek terminology that is not used in anywhere else in that gospel. Um, and so you look at those kind of things and it, that, that would probably indicate to us that, that John didn't write this portion of the text. Well, listen, I find great comfort that our Bible has been so tested to ensure that it is as close to the original as possible. No other book has had to pass such stringent tests like this. And that there's such transparency about the very few portions of the Bible that have come into question over the years. And so why would that happen? Well, because as time goes on, earlier manuscripts were found just by archaeologists, or even by accident. The story of, of how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found is an amazing story. Accident, sorry, Lord. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm just realizing, oh yeah, I'm standing before the eyes of God here. Um, I'm sorry. By providence, how they have been uh, discovered. But they just simply were discovered after there were already manuscripts that had been written. So. I just find it humble and transparent that the Bible kind of tells on itself. That our theologians and scholars will say, here is an area that we don't know that we should consider as canon. But then you might ask, okay, why is it in the book then? Would any of you like to talk about that? I really worked hard on this because you should bounce your head. <laughs> to say, you know, make me feel a little bit better. Uh, you might be just using this time to catch up on some sleep. So, um, so listen, 1,300 years it's been in our Bibles. 1,300 years of church history, this portion of John has been included in our Bibles with the acknowledgement that it does not carry the authority that the rest of the canon of Scripture does. So what use is it then? From what I could tell, a majority of scholars agree that while this section of scripture was not divinely inspired text, it was likely an accurate historical account of an event in the life and ministry of Jesus that was passed down through oral traditions that began to be included. If you could just kind of, kind of see the process of the copying of manuscripts. Many times, just like we, we so rely on commentaries today, there would be commentary written in margins that would illustrate or highlight an example of what the text was talking about. And it's likely that this was a true account passed down orally that began to be included in the margins of manuscripts. Not because it was authoritative, but because of how well it illustrated the truth. It doesn't contradict any Christian doctrine. And in fact, as you're going to read with me this morning, it actually corroborates and agrees with and illustrates Christian doctrine. At some point in church history, it seemed that those copying the manuscripts began to remove it from the margins and think that it should be included in the actual gospel of John about what happened in Jesus' ministry. Um, I don't believe this portion of John stands on its own as authoritative truth, but I think there's a real pastoral purpose in it because if it is an accurate historical account, it's valuable as an illustration of truth. And that's why we're gonna preach it. You guys, I just felt like we, we owed this to you. I, 
there were commentaries that certainly gave time to this. I, I just, just kind of filtered through different sermons of people that I respect. And some people just, they didn't even, they, 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 they finished um, where Hugh finished last week in 752, and they just totally skipped over this account of the woman caught in adultery and just picked up their sermon series in verse 12, and they didn't even mention it. I didn't think that was, that's what we ought to do. I thought we should talk to you about this uh, because it's important and it's valuable and it's instructive and I think it will touch our hearts. So let's remember also that John himself tells us in John 20, 30, 31, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. And later in John 21, 25, he says, there are also many other things Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I hope by the end of our sermon, I think you'll see that Jesus' encounter with the scribes and with the Pharisees and with the woman caught in adultery in 753 through 811 will be a powerful illustration of the authoritative truth that follows it in 8, 12 through 30. Okay. Uh, infomercial over. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? I'm sorry, I'm so dry today. I think just it's a 12-hour time difference, and our bodies have been through a lot of interesting experiences here. John chapter 8, chapter 7, and we'll start with verse 53, and then we'll read in to chapter 8. And so they replied, this is actually starting in verse 52, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And they all departed from there. Chapter 8, uh, each one went to his own house. Now chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I've heard from him. They did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, Lord, as we heard you say these things in divine scripture, we pray that many here would believe in you too. God, for the person who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, we pray that they would experience the grace of saving faith this morning. And for those of us who are already following you as our light and our salvation, God, we believe, but there's so many parts of our lives where we struggle to believe. Would you help us to believe even more than when we first came in this morning? We love you. We need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will never forget counseling a young couple who were struggling in their dating relationship. They thought they should possibly move forward toward marriage, but they each talked about how they had some really serious issues trusting each other. Um, particularly just with deep heart issues. They... They cared about each other. They thought maybe marriage should be in their future, but they just, they struggled to trust each other with the most vulnerable parts of themselves. Never had this experience up to that point like this, but I sense the Holy Spirit leading, to me, leading me to ask a pretty blunt question. I asked them if they had been engaging in premarital sex. I've served as a pastor for a long time, and just you, you learn something through, through just time spent serving the Lord. And so often, trust between a husband and wife, or someone considering becoming a husband and wife, it's very hard to do when you've been violating each other's trust in, in committing fornication before marriage. You're, you're, just, you're just taking advantage of each other's vulnerability, and somehow the soul knows that. And it, be, and it turns out to be this distrusting kind of a thing. So I, I, that was the Holy Spirit that just put on my heart then, but it's, it's something that's really proven itself over and over again. There's more damage than you think taking place in the name of intimacy that actually destroys intimacy. Their reaction was immediate and strong and fearful and angry. They first asked, why are you asking us this question? Then they started accusing each other. It just Sometimes just be quiet. <laughs> Things will just unfold before you. Uh, then they started accusing each other of telling me what they were doing. I stepped in at that point and I told them to stop fighting and that neither one of them had come to tell me anything about this. And they asked me, why did you ask us if we were having sex? My reply, 
I told them that someone had seen them doing it. Someone had caught them in the act. And that's how a light had shined about what they were doing in the darkness. Well, that didn't help matters. And at that point, they began fighting again and blaming each other for what they'd been doing. Progressively, their anger began to transform into guilt and shame. And they asked me, can you, can you tell us who saw us? And I told them I would certainly tell them who saw them. God saw you. I was so disappointed with their reaction. They literally breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, oh, Pastor Billy, you scared us there for a minute. We thought someone really saw us. Boy, doesn't that just describe the state of a fallen world? That we think so much, so highly of people and so small of God. Isn't it amazing how even a professing believer, these two were professing believers, but now you're discovering what their real problem was, aren't you? They had no high view of God. They had a high view of their their own pleasure. They had a high view of their own plans. They had minimal view of a holy God watching every thought, knowing every thought, seeing every deed, catching us all the time in the act of sin. God's eyes are always catching us in the act of committing sins each and every day in our attitudes and actions. But we place more value on the opinions of people than we do about the eyes of a righteous and holy God. Well, this morning we're going to read about an event in which Jesus speaks to not just one, but three kinds of people who were all caught in the act of sinning and how all these people needed the light of Christ needed the light of Christ to lead them out of their darkness into the light of salvation. Sadly, two of the three, though convicted by the light, did not repent and walked away from Jesus. But one remained at his feet to receive the grace of his light and salvation. So that brings us to the main point, which is in your notes. We desperately need the light of Christ to open our eyes to our sinfulness so that we can believe in and follow Christ as our light and our salvation. So let me remind you the context leading up to chapter 8. The people in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Hugh taught on that last week and described the joy that came in the water ceremony and, and um, the, the fact that Jesus was the living water. He, he was the rock that was pierced so that living water could come out and fill the hearts of those who would believe. Um, so that was, that was gratitude and joy that was described there. But that wasn't the only ceremony that was happening. You could call it one ceremony was a water ceremony. Another ceremony was the ceremony of light. And that that followed the water ceremony. And the people would gather in the court of the women at the temple each evening of the Feast of Tabernacles. The focus of the people were on four large lamps, some 75 feet tall. Four ladders were used and four young men, I'm glad it wasn't old men, I would never do it, Um, Four ladders were used by four young men who would climb to the top and pour oil into each bowl. And then each lamp would be lit. And the rest of the night would be filled with a celebration of dancing and singing and playing instruments and the light from from the lamps. And, And add to the light, many people would dance with torches in their hands. They would dance from sundown until dawn. The joy was so great. 
The light of those lamps was designed to symbolize the great pillar of fire and, and the cloud that guided and protected the people of Israel in the wilderness. And in hopes that God would send the prophesied deliverer that Moses spoke about, who would be a better light for them than the artificial light they were experiencing from those light posts, those lamp posts. Uh, the cloud of pillar symbolized God's presence with his people and his commitment that he would always be with them to save them, to save those who believed in them, to protect those who believed in them, and to guide them. And, and the day after the feast, then, with all that background, Jesus stands up in the temple and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in verse 24, he gives the, the bad news, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So now let's look at how John 7, 53 through 8, 11 serves to really illustrate or point to that truth about Jesus being the light of the world. And how we need him to shine upon the, the filth and ugliness of our sins because we think too highly of ourselves. We don't understand that the fall, what the fall of Adam did to us, what we inherited, depravity through and through. Not that we're as bad as we could always be, but we're bad through and through. Even our most righteous efforts are still stained, aren't they? They're still stained. Oh, you know, maybe if I just do this righteous thing, wonder what kind of prize I'll get from God. Or maybe you'll like me better. Or maybe you'll give me the applause that I deserve for doing something so righteous. So even when we do something righteous, it's still stained because of our motives and our intentions. So the first point is this. The light of Christ is superior to the law of Moses. And we're going to see that in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. So first notice in verses 1 through 6 how Jesus catches them in the act of sin in, the, in regard to using the law of Moses. This is the best way I can know how to say it. They used the law of Moses lawlessly. You ever done that to somebody? Come on. Have you ever used the Bible to beat someone down rather than to lift someone up? Have you ever ex experienced someone who in the name of Christ beat you down with the Bible instead of lifting you up with its truth? That's what's happening here. They use the law of Moses lawlessly. The scribes and Pharisees brought this precious woman to Jesus to supposedly put her on trial, right? But what they were really doing was seeking to put Jesus on trial again and build more of a case for why they could arrest him and put him to death. The reasoning went something like this. They, they likely thought that Jesus would not stone her because he ate and drank with tax collectors and prostitutes and various other kinds of sinners. And if he didn't stone her in their eyes, aha, we got him, he'll be breaking the law of Moses and we could get him on that. Or if he did stone her, it would place a bullseye on his back by the Roman authorities. Because at that time, Israel did not have the right to carry out capital punishment. Only Rome did. We got them now, don't we? Now you, just see, you can almost see them drooling at this, thinking that their brilliance <laughs> has outsmarted the king of the universe. I say that, you guys, because I think we do the same thing. When we're trying to think about the future we think would be the beneficial future for us, when, when we look at different paths we should take, and we typically would, would, would evaluate them not by uh, what, what is going to cause us to be more like Jesus. We would typically evaluate them by what will get us what we want quickest. Aren't we trying to outsmart the king of the universe? We're in this story, aren't we? 
Have you not had that experience of having self-righteous people misuse the Bible? To not only point out how sinful you are, but this is what's worse. They shame you. Listen, I, I'm just more aware of making more mistakes as a dad than I did anything good. And by God's grace and them having a great mom, my boys turned out okay. I mean, they're following Jesus. But I'm just more aware of the things I fell short in. And there were times, parents, please be alert to this. There are times in, in the name of discipline that, that we think that the, the, the volume of our voice first is going to change their hearts. No, the truthfulness of the correction, the correction pointing to the fact that their heart has a bigger problem than the fact that they just didn't clean their room. There's a bigger issue going on there. It's called being dead in sin. And they need to be saved by that. But then, have you ever, as a parent, have you ever tried to motivate your kids into obedience by crossing the line and actually shaming them? There's a lot of parents that did that. I'm one of them. I was one of these people. Point out sin and condemn you for your sin. No interest in you being saved from your sin. I just have to prove myself right. I mean, this poor woman... She wasn't on trial. They were putting Jesus on trial. They were the religious elites, and they're using this self-righteousness to cast more shame upon her already existing heartache and sorrow for being an adulteress. Oh, that's why we say God helps be a church that prizes gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Do you see why that's so important? So important. Well, second, in verse 6b through 7, notice how Jesus shines the light of his truth and holiness on the scribes and Pharisees and convicts them of their sin. So Jesus bends down. Did you notice this? I tried to read it in a way that maybe you'd notice it. Pay careful attention to what the text said Jesus did. He used his finger to draw, to, to write, not draw, like he was doodling <laughs> again. Sorry, Lord. He used his finger to write on the ground. Do you remember another time in the Bible when it says that the finger of God did something? Tell me. Ten Commandments. I'm so glad three of you are still awake. Yes, I'm just doing great. I told somebody, somebody texted me on Friday saying, I'm praying for you. You must be exhausted. And he was so kind and caring. I said, thank you. I'm, I'm studying for Sunday sermon. And I've already fallen asleep twice. And I, I was saying, oh, God, please don't let the preaching of that sermon have the same effect on you. So I'm so thankful there are three that are awake still. Um, so, yes, in Exodus 31, 18, it tells us that the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. Folks, there were a lot of commentators with educated guesses as to what, don't you, you know, just, what did he write? <laughs> Maybe if we knew what he would write, that would do something for us. And some say he wrote down the Ten Commandments. Could have been. Some say he wrote out the scriptures that outlined the requirements of making a charge uh, against adulterers that would require a judgment of stoning. He was writing out those scriptures. Some say he was actually writing out the names of all those who were guilty of disobeying the scriptures in their, in their effort to trap Jesus. Others say he wrote out the names of the scribes and Pharisees who were also guilty of adultery. It's really interesting looking at all this. An interesting scripture that many kept uh, put forward as a possibility, I put in your notes. This is from Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. We've already learned in John, Jesus sees right through us. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're guilty of. So he very much could have been writing down names of the guilty. Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know what he wrote. But I think the attention and focus should be on the one who wrote it, not what he wrote. Jesus was going to ensure 
that he fulfilled the finger of God. Jesus was going to ensure that he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. You better be glad he did that because we wouldn't be saved if he didn't. We didn't, guys, our salvation wasn't something, we didn't just need to be forgiven. I think there's a lot of, that's the way the gospel is shared with a lot of people. It, as though, oh, all I need is to be forgiven. All I need to be brought out is, is from my horrible depravity into like moral neutrality. Just forgiven for all that I've done wrong, brought into kind of this neutral state. Will being in a neutral state get you to heaven? No. You and I have to have the very righteousness of Christ to stand before God without fear. And it's, it's the fact that Jesus kept the law perfectly that is our great hope and joy and why a 63-year-old jumps up and down. Because his keeping the law perfectly then gets ascribed as though you kept the law perfectly. He gives you the credit. It's like he's saying, Lord, you know all those times that Billy got angry and tried shaming his kids and did all of these things and tried to change his kids' hearts by the volume of his voice and all the lust and all all the pride and oh, all the sin of Billy's life. Lord, I was tempted in all the same ways, but I never, I never sinned. I kept your law perfectly. Would you credit it to Billy as though he did? You guys, I can't imagine you're not saying, oh, thank God. Amen. That we're counted with the very righteousness of Jesus? That's a miracle. How many of you struggle with discouragement and depression because you have these wrong views of what God is thinking about you at any given time? Here's what he's thinking about you. Forgiven, righteous, adopted. That's what he's thinking about you. Is it that I was raising my voice that woke you up? I hope it was the truth. I hope it was the truth. Oh, so guys, so he's perfectly fulfilling the law. And he stands up, and here's how he convicts them. He says, the one who is without sin is to cast the first stone. He could not have been saying that people had to be sinless in order to bring biblical justice. Do you have to be sinless in order to sit on a jury in Midland, Texas? No, I mean, there would be no justice if, if absolute sinlessness were the issue. He actually calls us to make judgments. You know, one of the most quoted verses by an unbeliever is, thou shalt not judge, right? Well, no, it's not what it says. You should judge, but with righteous judgment that is free from hypocrisy and self-righteousness and self-centeredness. Some say he was saying that if anyone was not guilty of adultery, that he should cast the first stone. But because they all left, I'm kind of doubting they all were guilty of adultery, though it's likely that some were. It's most likely that Jesus was making sure he was fulfilling the law and keeping it perfectly about this particular charge of sin against this woman. And the law said that both the adulterous man and woman were to both be brought forward for judgment, and they're already breaking that law. There was no man, if you noticed. And second, there had to be witnesses who actually saw the sexual sin taking place. They actually had to see it. Their, their, their story had to corroborate so much. There was, a, there was an account in one of the commentaries that, that spoke about a woman who was brought forward uh, for adultery. And there were supposedly two eyewitnesses. But they end up setting her free because one eyewitness said, well, we saw them under a fig tree. And the other one said, we saw them under an apple tree. And so they, they had to be perfect in what they saw in, 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 the, in, in two people affirming the account. And they actually, this sounds, I'm sorry, it sounds gross, but they actually had to see it take place. You couldn't have just seen two people talking with each other under a tree and then going, ha ha, oh, let's get them. It, it, you actually had to see the act taking place. And no one is coming forward to claim to be that eyewitness. And one by one, starting from the oldest to the youngest, they all quietly leave. You see, the light of Christ was shining, wasn't it? 
It was shining upon their sinfulness. They were the ones. It wasn't just the woman who was said to have been caught in the act. These self-righteous religious people were caught in the act as well. But they didn't repent. Have you ever had the light of Christ shine on you? You were convicted of a particular sin and you, you knew it was wrong, but you didn't repent and you walked farther away from Jesus than you were before. And if they would have died at that moment, what the truth says in verses 12 through 30, they would have all died in their sin of unbelief. And then third, notice how the light of Christ is superior to the law of Moses. The law of Moses can only reveal and convict us of sin, can it? But the law of Moses can't save us from it. Just like a mirror, right? A mirror, guys, I don't know if it's just getting older. Anyone getting older? Does stuff start sticking to your teeth more? Like when you, after you've eaten? I know, it's really gross. So please forgive me. If, I, if I'm after lunch and I'm coming up to you, hug you one day and I'm smiling and it looks like I'm Jethro or something like I'm missing teeth because of tabule stuck in my teeth or something, lettuce or kind of some kind of thing. Well, the mirror could tell me, knucklehead, brush your teeth, right? But can the mirror brush my teeth for me? No. The law of Moses can reveal our sin, but it can't cleanse me from my sin. That's why the light of Christ is so superior to the law of Moses. The light of Christ is full of grace and truth. It not only convicts us of sin, but it saves us from it. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf and then died as though he were guilty of committing every sinful thought and evil deed. So as such, Jesus not only shines the light of conviction upon our hearts, but he also shines the light of grace and the light of salvation upon our hearts and offers us new life in his name. What a savior. So the one who was the word made flesh bowed down once more. A second time it says, and he writes on the ground again. It's, it's almost this picture of the incarnation, isn't it? It's, it's he who is exalted above all stoops down low to save the worst of sinners. And, and did you notice that everyone ran off but the woman? She stayed at his feet. She stayed his feet. She stayed near Jesus. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she responds by saying, no one, Lord. And then, did you, did you notice there was someone there who could, who could have thrown the first stone? Who, who was it? It's Jesus. Sinless Jesus. He could have thrown he could have thrown so many stones at me <laughs> I don't think I think the stones he could have thrown at me would be higher than Mount Everest but he didn't throw the stone of condemnation and death because he fulfilled all the law perfectly and he was only months away from dying the punishment that that woman's sins deserved. And he said, neither do I condemn you. How many of you love Romans 8? Therefore, there is, say it with me, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gift that is to us, may we grow to love and appreciate more and more. And then he says, he doesn't he's not condoning her sin or anything. He says, now I'm still going to say, go and sin no more. But now it's rooted on a foundation of grace, isn't it? 
Any of you, before you were saved, you tried to live a moral life, but the more moral you tried to live, the more immoral you felt you were living. And, and it's just, there's just nothing in us that can live the Christian life without the Christ of the Christian life living in us. And so what he's doing there is he's saying, now, there's still commandments to keep, but they're now, they're now founded upon my grace. And they're founded upon the fact that I've given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a godly life as you move forward into the future. Oh, what a glorious illustration of the truth that we find in the second part of the chapter in verses 12 through 30. And the second part, just the second part of the sermon is when we follow the light of the world, we have life. And that's what that woman experienced. The Pharisees and scribes, they didn't believe they would die in their sins if they were to die at that moment. So we've already taught much on verses 12 through 30 in regard to Jesus not being the sole witness of his deity, but that God the Father affirms that he is God the Son again and again and again. So I'm not going to go into that this morning. I, I just want to close with this. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I think we need to accentuate whoever follows me, especially in West Texas. This is the second of the I am statements in Scripture, as Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He's bringing a greater exodus than the one Moses led. And he alone is able to give sinners a new life so that they can experience the light of salvation. They, they need the life of Christ to see the light that he gives. And so that, and that, you see that in John 1, if you want to go back and look at that. He was making a prophetic promise that when he comes again to make all things new, he's going to drive out all darkness. The darkness of sin and death and Satan and evil. And on that day, there will be only the joy of living in his perfect light, his eternal presence with his people. Isaiah prophesied about it. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon uh, give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, go, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So who can receive, who can experience the light of this kind of life? And it's all who believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. But did you notice, he, the, the whole book is about believing, right? So that's why we named the series, Believe. But here Jesus uses another word, to describe believing, and that is following. That is following. And I think we have to accentuate that. Following him. Precious ones, this is far more than just tipping your cap to Jesus once a week on Sundays or politely acknowledging him when his name is mentioned by others around you. This is seeing your need for his light and salvation like you need oxygen to breathe. This is trusting him and treasuring him. This is seeing your sin as horribly ugly and detestable. Oh, but seeing his righteousness as completely lovely and desirable. This is hating what he hates and loving what he loves. This is a hunger and thirst to know him more intimately and to become more like him in his character and his mission. This is to long for Jesus' name to be hallowed through your life and through your heart. Jesus, may your name be hallowed. May my heart be humbled. That's believing in Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And why would I say that? Because that's what grace does. To change our hearts. To take out the heart of stone. And to give us a new heart of flesh. A heart that desires to know him. Desires to obey him. Desires to follow him. And to serve him and declare his name to the world. It's just Christianity 101. That's how Jesus defines believing in him. And it's following him. 
So I just would say, I wish, I'm not going to use the word believe. Are you a follower of Jesus? And if you are not, I'm so glad you're here. Because we want to introduce you to the greatest love you'll ever experience. And that he's worth following. But I also need to tell you, there's another part of this story, isn't there? That if you are not a follower of Jesus, you will die in your sins. What that means is you'll, you'll die with your sins unforgiven. He, he paid the highest price he could pay. And yet you remain unconvinced that somehow you're, you're being the master of your ship, the captain of your ship, the author of your fate, is going to gain you a, a future and a hope and life beyond your grave. You're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. Verse 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe, so here's the word believe, so they're complementary words, follow, believe. Unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sin. What do you think your worst sin is? Is it one of those things, if we had a heart-to-heart talk, what would we tell each other? Man, when I was a kid, there was so much violence in my family, and my mom and dad hated each other, and black eyes and knives thrown, and it was, it was horrible. And one day my mom said something to me. I was now 16, 17 years old. She said something to me, and I just took my hand. I slapped my mother's face. God, I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus because I hate that memory. I hate that memory. I would, I would likely say that was, that was one of my worst sins. I, I was introduced to pornography when I was just like eighth grade, seventh grade. And oh, it took its roots in my heart. And last, I thought, I, thought I, I was told by a preacher, oh, you'll outgrow it. I went and confessed. I felt so ugly. I didn't know Jesus, but I just knew something was wrong in my heart. How I wish somebody would share the gospel with me. I went to a preacher, and he said, oh, you'll outgrow it. I get to my senior year in college. I haven't outgrown it. Its hold over me has grown. That's all that's grown. I would say, oh, that's one of my worst sins. Slapping my mother is one of my worst sins. Unbelief is the worst sin that you'll ever commit. Because I think a lot of us play the game. Well, it would be easy for you to leave here and go, like if you're a visitor especially, to go, well, I'm a lot better off than that preacher. (laughs) I haven't slapped my mom. You know, oh man, I'm doing pretty good. Unless you describe the worst sin as unbelief. You might first wonder if eternal judgment is a little severe for the sin of unbelief. Maybe eternal judgment for murderers or rapists or people who've been involved with ethnic cleansing or child or spousal abuse. But but unbelief? Well, first of all, precious ones, there's only the light of Jesus and the darkness of sin and death. That's your only two options. That's the only two options. There's not a third option. Unbelief is someone who is still dead in their sin, who believes they're walking in the light, and that those who are following Christ are walking in the darkness. That's pretty offensive to God. Isn't that true, though? When you were lost, didn't you think you had the light? And it was those weird Christians that were in the darkness... This person will die in their sins, meaning unforgiven sins, unrepented of sins. And to live a life eternally separated from God's love and mercy, but always in the presence of God's justice and judgment and punishment. 
Here's what unbelief says, just to, to, just to make really clear here, and I think this is so important in, in West Texas, where so many people say, oh, I'm a Christian, as they recover from last night's hangover as a lifestyle. So just, I think it's a caveat I probably need to throw in there. We're not talking about the fact that we all can still sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're talking about an unending lifestyle. So let me throw these out at you. Unbelief says God is of little to no value to me. How can you know that? Well, he's not worth my building a life around. Functionally, God is of less value than my car. He's less deserving of my praise than the cowboys are when they score a touchdown or when my dog obeys my commands to sit. Unbelief is treasuring everything else in the world more than the creator of everything in the world. Unbelief is saying that God doesn't deserve your devotion or your worship. And instead, it's, you, you can go off and be more devoted to your golf game or catching up on your sleep or to your children's activities on Sunday mornings than you are to loving his people and gathering to serve them and worship them. And to rest in the preaching of his word? Unbelief prefers sex to God. It prefers coffee to God. It prefers money to God. It prefers binge-watching TV shows to God. It prefers the praise of people more than praising the only one who deserves praise. That's unbelief. The list can go on and on. Do you see why not believing in and not following and not trusting and not treasuring Jesus Christ is the single most serious sin you could ever commit? Do you see that? And why is that? Because the one you've chosen not to believe is God. The God who so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish, would not die with sins unforgiven, but have eternal life. Eric, would you come and bring the team? I put this last verse in your notes. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Oh, whom shall I fear? I don't have to fear the wrath of God anymore because Jesus paid the price for my sins. I, I can now, if I, and, and listen, if, if I'm not fearful of God's judgment, if that, if that fear has been cured, then can't every other fear be cured too? So think about the things you might be fearing today. He goes on to say, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Um, as long as we live on this earth, there's still going to be the presence of the light of Christ, the glorious presence of the light of Christ, protecting us, saving us, empowering us, leading us all the way home. But we're living in a world of darkness. As I prayed for, for you this morning, I, I just asked the Lord, Lord, is there an, a specific application and this is what was put on my heart, and I could totally be wrong because I haven't slept much lately. <laughs> so this could be just a, a good effort, a well-intended effort. But how many of you are believers? You are followers of Jesus. And, but yet you, when you get into a situation where you're in the dark about something, and it might be a decision you have to make, it might, it might be you're in you're wait, you're, you feel like you're in the dark because you're waiting for a diagnosis from a doctor or waiting to see if you're on the list of people being laid off or in the darkness of not knowing what's going to happen with your children. There's so many ways the darkness kind of descends on us, isn't there? And, and I, I just felt like the Lord was saying, how many of us think that the answer is trying to somehow get out of the darkness to get to the light? Rather than, rather than just drawing near to the one who has joined himself to us, who calls himself the light of the world. Uh, the illustration was this. When the kids were little, uh, 
there's just so, about, so much about those days I miss. But I gotta tell you, parents of young ones, it's an amazing experience when your kids get older and, and they become your friends, and it's not just father, son, but it's gospel partners, and it's friends, and the, the future's bright. Oh, and then you get grandchildren. So the, the, the future's bright, but I remember when I would put the boys to bed, they all had different struggles with going to bed at night. The darkness was scary. And uh, so, you know, there was like night lights and things that we used. But you know, it was an amazing thing. Amazing thing that, you know, sometimes I'd lay down, we'd pray. I'd lay down with them in bed. And uh, we'd talk and we'd laugh and we'd pray. It's an amazing thing that as long as daddy was in the room, they didn't need any artificial light. Because dad was the light. I hope that's a word of encouragement to some of you who feel like you're trying to scramble to find the light for, to, get, to understand what's happening in my life rather than to draw near and lean upon the Savior who is your light and will provide you step by step the light you need for the direction you're seeking. Let's stand and sing.